0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. we would be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and we'd appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes' time to, to do this. Sadly, there's there's not not really a lot of uh, reviews sort of recently that we can't... Uh, uh, we can't um, tell you or re- read out. But anyway, uh, today, um, thankfully we've got, got Brian back. We're, we're in, his, uh, in his office a- again uh, using a bit of different equipment, so, so it might sound a bit, a bit strange, but um, we're blessed to be joined by Neil Fitzgerald. Thank you, Neil, for, for coming in. Very Neil well. is one of our uh, lecturers in Diagnostic Imaging. So, uh, a, a rare thing now at universities to have diagnostic images. So We're a dying breed. <laughs> too much teleradiology going on. But anyway, we, we'll, uh, we'll move on from, from that. So, uh, so we thought, uh, or, or, or with your assistance, we'll talk about the technical side of using ultrasound in practice because you do a lot of uh, um, continuing education and training vets. Yep. Um, and, uh, and you said, like, common common things come up with using your your ultrasound and common um, ways or simple ways that we can make people better.
1: Yeah, and and I think getting the most out of your machine. We're paying a lot of money for these machines now and they're getting better and better and the image quality is much better than it was maybe 10 years ago. And I suppose the basic things that people forget, you know, if we start at the very, very beginning, you know, you get your animal in, making sure simple things like they're fasted, Often you know owners are a little bit reticent about clipping, they must be clipped, we need a big area of clipping, we can't do this with hair and with gel and it's just going to be a mess. Um, Patient positioning, having some some people there to hold your animal, make sure it's still, you're not trying to wrestle with them and equally if it's feasible and you have an animal that's healthy enough sedate it. It's going to be so much easier if you're a little bit inexperienced, you have a bit more time and when you've just visualized that adrenal, the last thing you want to do is that animal jump off the table and you've lost that picture and you haven't got to evaluate as as much as you want. Um, I suppose... Other things that I, I often see and I see it probably more around the rest of the hospital is you know people are inclined to work in very bright light and you get a lot of reflection on the images it makes it quite difficult and everyone's standing there squinting at the screen instead sort of turn the lights off turn the lights down use some kind of side lamp just to have a bit of light in the room so you can see where your hands are um, and it'll make it much easier to look at these images. Then kind of moving on to machine values I suppose people they get a machine, they get a couple of probes, nobody really has a clue what's for what. And I suppose just as a a kind of a broad or, general guideline, you know, we, we tend to have curvilinear or we have linear probes and you'll know the difference when you look at them. So the head of the probes are either curved or they're flat. And so the flat probes, they tend to be the higher frequency probes, the curved ones tend to be the lower ones. And generally as they get bigger, they tend to be the lower ones. So the youths in humans for abdominal scanning and um, the smaller ones are, are they t- tend to be the ones we mo- use most frequently because they're kind of a mid range, if you like. And, you know, when you look at those probes and you speak to your whoever has sold you the machine, it's a good idea to get a little bit of a range. So if you can have a probe that goes somewhere from 6, 7 megahertz through to about 8, which would be your linear, and then move on to the linear probe, which goes somewhere from probably 8 to maybe 14, that will suit the majority of the patients you're going to see. So we're going to use those higher frequencies for cats, small dogs, and then the lower frequency, obviously, for bigger, you know, medium to bigger sized dogs. And that would be for general abdominal scanning. Cardiac scanning is a completely different kettle of fish altogether. And so when we get those probes and, and you set them up, you obviously want to use for whatever you're looking at, you want to use the highest frequency possible. So if you use a 10 megahertz probe, you really only get about four centimeters depth. So if you think about your Labrador, you're gonna be looking to see its bladder with four centimeters. So you're gonna to have to use lower frequency. So immediately when you put that probe on, depending on what you're looking at, you'll use the highest possible, but you know, obviously enough to see the organ. And then when we look at the image, there are gonna be some things we're gonna to have to change. So when you look at your, your little t- or platform in front of you that's displaying all the dials you're going to see lots of little knobs and dials and there are going to be some sliders usually along the right hand side and when we go to different practices And we look at the way people have arranged these there's all kinds of funky things going on and nobody really knows what they are And they just kind of leave them and ignore them and what these are designed are they they're designed to change how much gain we have on that image so each of those little dials is is Corresponds to a segment on the screen and so what you'll see is the ones more towards the top or for the top of the screen and the ones Further down or for the bottom of the screen and so what you would do is you tend to orientate them diagonally So you move the ones at the top to the left and the ones on the bottom towards the right and This is done because the machine knows that it's taken so long for those echoes to come back from a certain area so so much time And in that time, they become attenuated. And obviously, the ones that go further into the tissue become attenuated or weaker um, with more time. And so what you want to do is you want to say to the machine, so it takes this long for these echoes to come from here. And so I want you to make those brighter. And when you do that, it evens out the image. So you have, instead of having a very dark area at the bottom, it's now an even gray, if you like.
0: Do most uh, newer ultrasounds do this?
1: Automatically? Yeah. Um, not necessarily. So the higher grade ones will. But oftentimes you'll find when you do the scanning, you have to change it manually anyway because with different tissues, so for instance, the bladder, we know when you travel through urine or fluid, it doesn't attenuate as much. and So when you look uh, deeper to the bladder, it looks really bright. And that's because the machine can't compensate for the fact that there's tissue in front of the bladder but there's a bladder filled of urine and it it doesn't know that there's a difference in the tissues. It assumes everything is the same thing. And so for that, in that scenario, you would say, well, I don't need to have those as bright, so I would slide those a little bit to the left, the deeper or the further down dials. And equally, if you have a really fat dog, you tend to get a lot of artefact from the fat, the the subcutaneous fat. And so for those ones, you would slide those right to the left. You don't want to increase any gain from those because they're going to really cause a lot of artefact on the dorsal bit of the image or the top of your image rather and I suppose that the next thing that you would do so when you look at your image and you're like mm, maybe it's too bright maybe it's too dark and the the guideline is is you have it as dark as you can see it as you can but you can still see your organs so things tend to look when you look at vessels they tend to look dark and you look at tissues they're somewhere grayer and then the fat tends to be a bit brighter and that's the kind of gray scale we're looking at. And the dial that you use for that, there tends to be a dial, it's, it's called your gain. So your overall gain it usually has a B on it, a B for brightness. Um, and when you turn it to the right, that's usually to, to increase the, the gain, turn it to the left, it tends to decrease the gain. And so we try to keep that as low as possible. Um, there are times that you'll increase it. So say you have some f- sediment or something in the bladder, you might want to increase that to be able to see those. But as a general rule, you keep that as low as possible. Um, And then there's some other things. So when you begin ultrasounding, you tend to just focus on the anatomy and you're trying desperately to find that kidney and you kind of forget about increasing or decreasing the the area that you're seeing on the screen, so decreasing your depth. So if you're looking at a spleen and it's only occupying maybe one to two centimetres at the top of the screen, you don't need ten centimetres of depth on that that image because you're you're, you're not able to use as high a frequency as you want. Your axial resolution is going to decrease, so what you want to do is zoom up that as much as possible and it will make it much easier to see any subtle lesions. And, you know, this might be a scenario that you switch to a different probe at, at the same time. And when you, when you do that, you, you decrease the depth, you'll also ch- change your focal zone. You'll often see there's like little arrows or little triangles along the left right hand side of the screen. And what these are, these are areas where we're adjusting the width of the, the ultrasound beam because it's not, just a, it's not just a line, so it has a thickness and it, it tends to narrow to a point and then it widens out again. And so what we're telling the machine when we put our focal zone somewhere is that's the area I'm most interested. That's where I want um, I want you to, to focus on. It's going to be the narrowest beam, so we're going to have the best resolution. And that will also get rid of some artefacts. So if you have um, some side lobe artef- or um, summation artefacts, say, for instance, with the, the urinary bladder and you see the colon is Coming into the image, so it makes it look like we've got maybe calculi in the dependent aspect. And um, what you can do is change your focal zone, and sometimes that will narrow the beam, and you're no longer including a bit of bladder and a bit of of colon. And um, you can also do things like changing your orientation, which will you know confirm or deny whether you have some calculi. Um, and those those are your focal zones. Some people and this is not a criticism on the the equine people but oftentimes you see they have 20 focal zones up the side of their like every focal zone they can employ it's it's along the side and this is not going to improve your you can't like you you can do one or two but it's There's no need to do any more than that. And really all that will do, especially when you're abdominal scanning, is it'll slow your frame rate. So everything, when the dog's panting, everything will just be moving and you won't be able to see anything. So one or two focal zones, and that's plenty, yeah? Um, And I suppose once you get past those settings, you're kind of moving into maybe a little bit more specialist. And these would be things that you wouldn't change very frequently Probably you would sit down with whoever sold you the machine to change things like how contrasty your image looks. You know, Do you like your image where the, the vessels and things are very dark and the, the white is very bright and there's not very many greys in between? Or do you like the image to be greyer? And some of that is a personal preference. And definitely um, when we're using the machines, people are different on, on what they like. There are also extra things that you can have so you don't have to have just a normal image processing so you can use things like harmonics or pulse inversion or compounding and these are different ways so how w- we've changed the shape of the beam as it's entering the patient or we're cha- changing how we're processing those images and then what they do is get rid of quite a lot of artifact in it so they make things look more contrasty but more smooth if that makes sense and it can make it easier to look at smaller structures but this tends to be mostly with linear probes, and we're getting down to the level of where we're trying to see maybe ureters, you know, very, very small structures. Um, And we will use them sometimes in general scanning, but because we do that, often these ultrasound um, waves aren't able to travel into the patient as far anyway, because they become attenuated quicker. Um, But a lot of that becomes beyond the scope of maybe what a someone who doesn't really understand the physics behind it, but definitely your manufacturer or whoever says you the machine should be able to set it up, so you just press a button and it works. And you go, yes, for these kind of things I use my harmonics, but for the majority of the time it's probably going to be turned off.
0: You know, there are certain probe types that people are better to start off with, say, and probably depending on what they're interested in. So you, mm. said, you mentioned Horses about tendons, like is it easier to, you know, is it better to start off with a linear probe? And I suppose for small animals, if you're looking at abdomens, is it better to start off with a, uh, a curved probe?
1: Yeah, I, th- the, the the annoying thing is, you know, the smallest animals, the curve li- or the linear probes tend to be, you know, almost four centimeters long. They're a nuisance. They're so big. And so ideally, I would still, and I think because you're learning and you still should try and not focus too much on um a single organ you should try and get a general view of the abdomen i would still use my curvilinear and then as i as i'm looking at more detail i will switch but we're constantly switching back and forth now if you're purchasing things i think you really if you have a choice of one or the other thing you have to go with the curvilinear because really a, a linear you won't be able to scan anything much bigger than maybe a six or seven kilo dog so unless you, have very, unless you just do cats or just do exotics, you kind of have to go down the curvilinear route. Um, you don't really have a, a choice in that. Um, and, I, and I suppose as a, as a guideline, those curvilinears should have a frequency around 7, 8 megahertz t- you know, to be able to scan a range of animals
0: the linear is more common in people because of use for instrumentation like putting in central lines or for smaller like muscular skeletal as well and local anesthetic blocks yeah
1: then they do a lot of musculoskeletal. and because it's ideal for people in some ways because they've got a nice foot plate, so they just they rest very nicely on the skin our problem is is when you try to do you know cat abdomens and you're trying to get under ribs or look at liver or things like that and they, it fits nicely longitudinally within the intercostal space, but when you're going transverse, you're often sitting on, and it's quite uncomfortable for the patients. So f- for that side of things, it's a bit of a nuisance, and we probably don't have a big enough of a market to create really small probes, you know, that are very very high frequency. But you know, we we do have other uses. You can use them for things like ocular ultrasound. We do some do some um, musculoskeletal ultrasound. On occasion, we have done some jugular sampling and things like that, not just normal sampling. we have really fat patients that you can't feel them in you know so that there are plenty of uses but it depends on the range of what you have in your practice and i think for the average person it's going to be just abdominal scanning so a lot of practices can't justify the cost of a a linear probe unfortunately which it's much easier i think when you have the best image possible it's much easier for you to interpret normal versus abnormal but that is a limitation.
0: And as you're saying, when people are starting out about getting the the, the basic sort of right, so a darkened room environment, and yep. their patient, in the proper position, yep. and and clipped, um, you, you know, the clipping. That I, I, I always think that a lot of diagnostic images are frustrated barbers because the amount of time you spend like clipping animals, <laughs> like it's quite it's quite. Uh, you, we you love take it very seriously. <laughs> yes, we do. And and do you, um, as well. So would you, I suppose, always put spirit on and use ultrasound gel? And I suppose the other thing is, uh, know from using more of the uh, ultrasound in the emergency room about the the, um, the probes themselves mm. getting damaged by the oh, use God. of the products that we that we use. So, yeah. So even even though some probes might say that indestructible they're certainly not
1: yeah and i think we like you know since we moved to the new machine which now it's probably about two years and obviously it's brand new and we we don't we want it to last as long as possible as as you should have for any piece of equipment that you're bringing into your practice but for us clipping first of all having like a proper pair of clippers you know sharp blades you you can't have blades first of all that are blunt you can't have blades that are over sharpened because these are the ones where you start to see, you know, these linear cuts on animals because they'll over sharpen the the bottom blade. And so instead of having them sticking out a little bit, now the two are aligned and that's what catches the skin and they snag it. So, you know, animals get and owners will get really annoyed because they get really bad clipper rash. You know, there's There is no need for any of that kind of thing. And I think that just Bill's kind of bad blood with the clientele, because they're like, absolutely not. He had a scan before and he was itching for three weeks after. So I think having proper blades, having cordless is a little bit easier. So you you tend to be a bit more movable, but if that's not possible, that's fine. and keeping them clean. So clean them after you've clipped the dog, have some clipper spray there. And you know, if it's, it becomes a routine, you know, you've got the bin, you've got the clippers, you've got the oil, you've got your toothbrush, give them a clean, give them a spray, put them back in the charger. And it it becomes something you do automatically. And those blades, like we only change our blades, even though we do maybe 13, 14 scans a day, we change the blades maybe once every three months. So you don't need a new set of blades every day, but those blades are not used for clipping the, you know, dog that comes in with mats all over it they are kept specially for that purpose as far as the using alcohol and things so i don't really know where it came from i think it's the idea is to get rid of some of the oils on the skin and w- since we moved to the new machine we now as a routine we do not use alcohol on the skin before we use gel but i suppose some patients you'll find you clip them and they've got really dry kind of flaky skin and so for those animals what i'll do is i'll just get p- some swab Um, and some warm water and just wet them down. And so just by adding that moisture to the skin, then you can gel them up after and scan them. And I haven't seen any difference in the image quality between those two. Now, I suppose in the ECC situation, it's different because you don't have 10 minutes to spend clipping as your dog is bleeding out in front of you. But there are some other things, uh, steps that you can take to try and protect those probes. So we, uh, for all of our sampling, all of the probes are always covered, so you can get special sterile covers, and I think they're they're not super cheap, so they could be maybe £50 a pop. And you could keep that on and keep that as a reusable probe to be fairly durable. The other cheaper option that we use, because we want to be able to change them between patients, uh, we'd apply, you apply some ultrasound gel to the probe and then using some cellophane wrap um, or cling film, you you basically cover the top of that probe. And like that, that will last, it might last you two scans if you, you know, if you didn't get a chance to change it. And again, it's cheap, you know, and it's not, it's not going to... This so was environmentally, it's not the best, but it's better probably than paying another four or 5,000 for another probe. Because what that alcohol will do, you'll see the the plastic casing on the probes is fine, but you'll see where the, the plastic casing meets that rubber um, foot plate of the, the probe. That's what starts to get perished. And you see all these cracks starting to occur. And many of the companies, if they even if they cover these or they're under some, some kind of, not insurance policy, but maintenance policy, if they see alcohol damage, you know, that's something that you've done. So They're not they're not going to replace your pole. pole and really the, the
0: probes thing. are like the, the most expensive bit out of the whole yeah. kit, really, aren't they? Yeah. They're the thing that uh, Absolutely. Costs, the, costs the money to and, replace. And things
1: like, you know, being careful that they don't get so you'll often see someone moves the dog and someone's just rested the probe on the table and it flew off the table and banged. And you know, those the piezoelectric crystals that are in those probes are very fragile. So you really can't be too heavy handed with them. And you know, other simple things like, when you do get in to start doing ultrasound guided cystos or thoracocentesis, abdominal synthesis, be careful about your needle placement. So the number of probes you see that have like little stab marks in them because usually what happens is you use You can use the needle quite close to the probe, but you need to be careful that you're not at too shallow an angle. But usually the advice is, you know, step back a little bit. You need to come back maybe two, three, four millimeters away from your probe before inserting your needle. And that way you're a bit safer. And I suppose if you're starting out, you know, if you place your probe, look where you're putting your needle, insert your needle a little bit. You know you have some skin to go through and then turn back and look at your image rather than trying to do things blindly because you'll end up stabbing your fingers or stabbing the probe. And of course, that kind of damage is irreversible, you know, on the probe head.
0: And ergonomically, so where where we uh, well, where you guys ultrasound, so the ultrasound is, is kind of in front of you, and the patient's normally to your to your right. Yeah. And and that is the benefit of right-handed people. So, or if you're left-handed, should it? Should, should you always hold the probe with your? With you don't.
1: Hand, you yeah? don't have to. So it would whatever way you train, and I think. Generally, I I, I know a Professor Lam is left-handed, but he learned, he trained with his right hand. And so if you can train yourself with your right hand, it's actually better because when you start to do ultrasound guided techniques, I switch hands so I use my dominant hand for the needle and then I use my left hand to hold the probe and I, I've, I've got used to doing that but of course if you can keep your, the probe hand the same hand always and use your dominant hand then to sample you're actually at an advantage and um, so it, it's probably easier to learn that way than to try and learn that ultrasound guided stuff with your left hand if that makes sense but that's it, that is really a personal choice it doesn't really matter and equally people have different ways of you know when they scan Some people scan in dorsal recumbency. I think most animals need to be sedated for that. We we have a preference for lateral recumbency, and we would do always head uh, at the machine, so facing away from us, and the bum end at the end of the table. And we tend to keep that orientation, whether other people will swivel the patient around so the legs are always towards you, if that makes sense. And so that can be easier for people to hold, but in my brain, I can't do upside down like that's just that's the wrong way around but it's whatever way you learn to do it so there is no hard and fast rules um for how you do it but some things that I suppose you find a lot of practices will have an ultrasound machine and they have the treatment room and the treatment room has the ultrasound machine in it but it's not set up to have that there and you find that the machine maybe gets put beside the patient and the patient is put you know beside that and then you have someone who's at a very funny kind of angle, trying to scan. And it's not its not good for your neck, especially if it's not in your eye line, so the ultrasound's not in your eye line, because you end up kind of hanging out, looking behind you, and it gets very uncomfortable. And I think, depending on how, like an average scan for us will take half an hour. Realistically, I think if you're starting out, a full abdominal scan will take you 45 minutes. And so if you're going to sit for that long, First of all, you don't want me standing, leaning against the side of it and you, you do need your nurses to be comfortable because they're not going to stand up and be uncomfortable for 45 minutes. So, you know, in those those rooms, even if it means having, you know, a cupboard that you open and your 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 ultrasound machine is set up in there, that you can take your probes out, you're your table can be brought over with your patient beside you, everything you need for sampling is beside you and you can start, you can start to work, turn your lights off and you're ready to go. You, you do need to think a bit, bit about that if you're going to do it seriously you know and if you're obviously in the emergency situations again it's different because you might need even a different type of machine that you can move around the room with you and um, whether if you're just t- intending on doing more standard stuff well then you could have your fixed machine and maybe a slightly better quality machine because you don't need it to be portable you know, that that could be a compromise for that.
0: So a lot lot of things when people start is just to do the same thing repeatedly, uh, I imagine. And I I think that's a fair enough assessment because when we do ask either Douglas images or or cardiologists to have a look um, at our patients for the majority of time, if it's something obvious they might be able to see see it, but a lot of the time Asked to go to your respective machine, yeah. I think part of <laughs> yeah. that is is familiarity, but yeah. also that you know in that in that position because I because I I do I do find ourselves in the emergency room uh, doing different you know animals are standing lying down yeah. on their back uh, yeah. at a weird angle and we try to you know although we try to have binary questions. Um, it can still be sort of problematic. Yeah,
1: and and but I think it's you. You have a different aim. You know, you're aiming to see the things that are going to change your immediate treatment or plan. For us, you're coming to look for a diagnosis, and I suppose you know different to humans where you would have generally a focus exam like it would be rare that they would just send you for an abdominal s- scan they may send you for an abdominal ct maybe but they don't tend to just look at everything and i suppose it's a little bit of a different approach we have in in small animals or in veterinary patients because they can't speak to us and say you know this it's this bit that's sore you know this right cranial quadrant or whatever and for that reason we have to try and look at everything and i think that's why we have to you know we're we're charging a, a sum for what we're doing, so we have to do the most complete exam that we can do with the best equipment we can provide, and make the most of that equipment at the same time. And and that and you're right. You know moving to our room, being in our zone, knowing that it's going to be a quiet room, we're not going to be disturbed, we're not going to have people fl- rushing in and out. And I know what a normal liver should look like on that scan. You know or, or on that machine. If you moved another machine in, it would look slightly different. And then. You when I would be scanning, I'm not automatically thinking, is this norlab normal? Lab? I'm going, do, 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 yeah, liver, liver, and, oh, that doesn't, hang on, that doesn't look, and then you go back, and you go, that doesn't look right, there's something wrong with that, What 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 is wrong, what is different to I nor- what I normally see, you don't automatically go, oh yeah, it's got hepatic cirrhosis, you go, hang on a second, it's really, you know, the contour is now wrong, or the echogenicity is wrong, or and you, you, it's a kind of subconscious thing that it becomes after a while, and, you know that kind of experience. I suppose will come with time, and that would be doing lots of normal animals. But doing them with your machine, you know, not multiple different machines, because then it just gets confusing. You know, so.
0: And when you're when you're sort of teaching uh, a, or learning, I suppose about mm. to do an ultrasound, should you should you always not only have the patient in the right position and yourself in the right position? Should you always do you look at things in a similar way as mm-hmm. in doing a physical exam? Will you? Yeah. Are you going to start off looking at the liver or looking at the kidney?
1: Yeah, and and who, depending on who teaches you, it will vary. But, you know, every year when we're training new residents, we try to have a list for them. So, you know, if you go to one of your, say you decide, you know what, I want to do some abdominal ultrasound. You know, the first thing I would do is probably get involved in some courses, some training courses, somewhere, somewhere to teach you basic ultrasound. But from that course, I would go home and go, OK, so they taught me in this way. I like that way. So I'm going to write down, I want a liver, but I want, what views do I want of that liver? What do I want to see in them? And do that for every organ. And then after a while, you know, that flow that you get, it just becomes automatic. Uh, Because in the beginning, I think you can get very stressed and you're like, oh. I think I did the liver, I can't remember, and then suddenly the dog is gone and you forgot to look at the left kidney or the right kidney. And and so those kind of lists can help you. Some of the machines will let you put in those lists, so they give you a labelling list, and we can use that as a guideline for what we've looked at or not. Um, and And I think in the beginning, you know, even if a patient comes for a focal urinary tract study, if the owners are okay with you clipping for it, I would just do the abdomen on that because the more times you can repeat that exam, especially in a patient that maybe you're not expecting to see any other problems, that kind of reinforces those, what those things should look like normally. But yes, you're right, it's always in the same, we try to do it in the same way. Yeah,
0: and where do you see? Although this may be a bit sort of slightly off topic, with the uh, uh, you know, marks advances in diagnostic imaging tools and and also the availability of those as well, particularly I suppose with CT and and MRI. Mm. Where where do you see uh, as well combined that with the um, I suppose the accessibility of ultrasounds that now a lot of practices might might have those. So mm. I think the majority probably in the, in the UK. Um, you know of a, of a reasonable size practice would would have that mm-hmm. where, where do you, do you see that the role of ultrasound is um, getting more s- specific or it's still as good as it was thirty years ago
1: i like I think its usefulness hasn't changed if anything it's got better with the better quality machines like this you know in, in a in a when you're looking at a size difference okay you 've got a hundred kilo Saint Bernard you're going to struggle with any machine with that because there's the physical limitations of the ultrasonographer you know versus this huge dog and and the the image quality we can get and so perhaps you know ultrasound is not the best for those but when you go down we're we're really lucky you know a lot of our patients are quite small so the average dog is probably maybe around 15 kilos 20 kilos and then we've got all these cats that are 4 kilos or less unless you get the giant ones And the the quality of the images that we can get from those are far better than what we're going to see in CT. Like in CT, we're going to get a general overview of these. But, you know, we have to remember that when we're acquiring those images, those are like two millimeter slices that we're seeing through those patients. When we're using our ultrasound, like we can see the layering in those intestines that we can't appreciate on CT we you see much much better kind of image contrast that you won't again see on ct just because everything is a soft tissue attenuation you'll see different enhancement patterns but you can't really compare the two and you know you still have the advantage with ultrasound where these patients can be conscious or lightly sedated if you've a very good animal we can do them conscious and that is something we can't do in ct even though people suggest we use mouse trap devices you know where they'll put them in a box and ct them but you really can't prevent the motion, so the cat starts moving it, it itself around there, um, or it gets stressed, so it's, it's panting a little bit. And you can't give them contrast because the worry is they're going to vomit. So you can compare them from that point of view, and particularly in a lot of patients who are very sick. We don't want to sedate or anesthetize them and, and put them through a CT for that reason. And you know, if you are going to use things like contrast, then you do have the worry that if there's any kind of renal disease, are we going to exacerbate exacerbate that by giving a contrast? And I and even though we can image, we can image the daylights out of these animals, and you know we can characterize these lesions. The fact is, is we still can't get a diagnosis by just doing that. We still have to sample them, and that brings us back to ultrasound again. So you know many of our CTs have ultrasound bu- booked straight after because they're like, oh, well you know we want to see what the the lesion is, and you know sometimes I think our approach has changed a little bit, and sometimes I'm not sure if it's for the best because. Even and I, and a lot of that is money related because obviously you don't want to have to do multiple exams, but I do think that if money didn't become an issue that a lot more patients would probably have ultrasound, and you know then there's going to be a certain percentage of those that will go, "Well, I'm not really sure what's going on in this. I think we need to go to somewhere it's going to give us a better cross sectional view, but many of those animals will go, "Yes, this is the lesion, I sample it." We get a diagnosis, you know, whether it's a tumor or whatever it is, and from that we know what's going on with that animal. We don't need to say, "Oh, it's got you know three centimeter by two centimeter, bloody bloody blah, blah." It's still got the thing. How are we going to f- proceed, or how are we going to fix it? And I suppose the the, the issue is going to become, you know, if more and more people move away from practices doing this as a as a you know. Like this is all i do every day you know or i'll do several times a week and if you move away from people that have that expertise and are just relying on a person who is also trying to consult they're trying to do surgeries trying to do some courses and trying to do ultrasound i'm a little bit worried that the level that we have for ultrasound is going to start to drop because then there's nobody to send cases to a referral level and what people are trying to do is they're trying to get cts in their practice and then they're sometimes not being used appropriately so for not necessarily that maybe not the correct ct studies being done or you know maybe imaging wasn't needed at all you know like and, and that kind of ex- expertise is going if, if we keep losing people from the private practices or the institutions where they're being trained people are being trained i'm a little bit worried that that's going to disappear and people will make up kind of things and say yeah ct is just as good but i don't think they're comparable
0: it's part of the issue that ultrasound is kind of a dynamic study, so it's hard to yeah. necessarily show you a static image of of, uh, of an ultrasound and for you to say, well yeah. done, yes, yeah, obviously this, because yeah. it's a, a static image when actually yeah. it's a moving, dynamic Absolutely. Study.
1: And, and you when know, you're scanning, you are diagnosing on the spot, so you're in your head You're trying not to verbalise because some of it doesn't make very much sense. But as you're scanning, you are saying to yourself, "That's not normal. That's not. Well, that's probably related to that." And and you know you're doing it as you go. The problem is with ultrasound if you don't put your probe on the the problem, then you don't see it. If you do CT, you involve the whole abdomen, so it's either visible or it's not. And and that's why you know even with the advent of telerad or teleradiology, companies are very happy to do that. There are some that will do ultrasound. But again, if you only take images of the normals or you miss the lesion, well then it's, it's, not, it's an incomplete exam. And, and I suppose that's, you know, do we need to move to training people to do ultrasound? Like maybe that's what we need to start doing because, you know, if you have someone who's very adept at picking up abnormalities and taking videos or images of that, maybe that's the way to go because many human radiographers or ultrasonographers are very, very good at that. And someone else is interpreting those images. And that might be something to fill the gap, but I'm not sure what way you would bring those lev- people to that level because you still need specialists to probably train them. We already have a deficit, so I don't, I don't know where you... Because human and an animal ult- ultrasonography are slightly different anyway. You
0: know. But the people tend to be quite focused and is is that right on certain areas, whether yeah. it's obs and guy and you cardio yeah. or the liver, then, yeah. then you get people that just scan that yeah. like day yeah. in, day out. Yeah. I suppose that, <laughs> and that,
1: they that. become experts at it, they're amazing, yeah. you know. But
0: but to have that it's quite interesting that the, the, the more and more we have, you know, this idea of an omni omnicompetent, omnicompetent vet to be able to do everything at yeah. a high level is is it's crazy, yeah. isn't
1: it? It's like, unrealistic. It's not and it's not fair, you know, I think we have a lot of delegates that come for the ultrasound courses and, you know, they're starting out and, you know, you get questions where people are like, oh, can you show me the ureters? And I'm like, it took me three years of training just to, you know, to be able to see one. Like, I can't show you in one day. But, you know, these are the kind of expectations that people have of them, that they should be able to diagnose a, a ureteric obstruction. You're like, well, I'm not sure that's fair, you know, because you you can already do all of these surgeries and know, I can't remember the last time I took a, a, a temperature from an animal. Not to mind, use a stethoscope. You know, so I think it's not fair. And you're right; it is unrealistic to, to expect that kind of expertise.
0: And particularly with all these different yeah. imaging modalities that yeah. we have, because because yeah. I, I, I suppose not, you know, off topic again, but the uh, you know radiographs of you know digital radiography or, or you know has I think improved the standard of radiographs. Yeah. We can actually see a lot more than we yeah. could, and 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 yeah. so much easier to. To take, you know, yep, so you know, things are improving quite exponentially. Yep. But I suppose that the, you know, the the uh, cheap, the more affordability, I suppose, of ultrasounds has made it more accessible to a lot of people. I mean, the first yep. ultrasound I had in practice was was ginormous, the size of a table. When you turned it on, the lights in the room dimmed themselves. <laughs> <you> know, <like laughs>
1: and it, it had a man- mechanical probe. It <laughs> <that> was <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I
0: mean, you know, things have changed absolutely. now that I know you can get probes attached to
1: um, your uh, smartphone. Android
0: <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, yeah. and and they're not crazily expensive. They might be no. limited for for the for the probes, you Yeah,
1: know. and I suppose the biggest problem with ultrasound because you lack that second opinion, with all of the advances, is overdiagnoses. And you know, I don't really know what the solution to that is because to prevent that or improve your capability, you need someone to teach you. And you will find lots and lots of um, basic abdominal ultrasound courses, and you'll see maybe one or two more advanced ones. But the problem is, is all of these practicals show you normal animals. So you don't see abnormal animals, and you aren't making doing that decision-making process. And so I think that's why it's such a steep learning curve. And I don't know how, like, I don't, you know, do we need to move to a VR system where we show people abnormal cases but real cases and use that as a diagnostic process you know I, I don't really know like I think that's in people that's what they're starting to do Um, and even those systems are not perfect but you know could that be something that we could use to fill the gap and, and improve people's um knowledge and capability just so you don't get crazy diagnoses that kind of they they tend to you know we of course we see some of them as they come through the hospital and it changes the way these animals may be managed fairly correctly and then suddenly someone's done a scan and decided it's got this and they changed the course of the treatment whether it it shouldn't have you know what i mean they were right as they were but now this has given them a completely red herring that they find and they decided that now this is the main problem and then they refer them even though they were doing a good job Doing whatever they were doing already, and maybe the patient might have been getting better, or was on the way to getting better, and um, but they end up referring them because they think, oh, it must be this. This is something God, I can't deal with this, you know. And I, that's the one thing that we see a bit too frequently, where there are cases that come in with a diagnosis of X Y Z, and it's just maybe a, it's a, it's an abnormal finding, but probably an incidental finding.
0: So that that sort of incidental oma or in, yeah, yep. incidental thing. I suppose if the adage is is most people it's not by uh, not by knowing it's not looking now we're looking a lot and then I suppose we're we're concerned that we're not knowing what we're what we're looking at and again that's the complexity and I suppose you know incredibly fortunate enough to to work with you guys so so I, I don't have to interpret that or if I do find something on a, on, a, on a rubbish scan that I, I try and do, at least I can ask you about yeah. it. And I suppose that's the, the learning and, process.
1: And equally, we can ask questions of the person who's... Because I, I haven't examined it. I haven't asked any history. I've, get, I've got a brief I- idea of what you guys need or want from the scan. But equally, I can find something and go, you know, is this a relevant finding because, you know, this patient is a jaundice? You know, are, 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 these, are, these, are there other... Things that can support this diagnosis, and you'll often find, and it's the same with radiographs. Most of the time, whatever we find, and I say this to the students, you know, rarely, and we get criticised for that. Rarely do we turn around and go, "Oh, it was this. This is what is wrong with the animal." We usually give you a nice long list of differentials, and then hopefully a plan to to diagnose that. And I think people need to remember that in practice, you know, you. I always thought once I did my imaging residency, you know, I would come to a stage where people would bring a radiograph and I would go, yes, it has this type of interstitial pattern and that means it has this. And that still hasn't happened. So, you know, and I think that, that same thing happens for ultrasound. You just need a plan. You find the abnormal thing and is this relevant? What's my next step? And, and that's and I, and I suppose that's why I think ultrasound is very useful because it, it, it gives you that next step thing that maybe CT doesn't.
0: Can I ask you what, what about uh, Doppler? Should you should you look for an uh, ultrasound that has Doppler capabilities or, or yeah,
1: yeah? And I think so. You have to think: Am I planning to echo with this, which I have limited experience with echo? Am I planning to echo or just abdominal ultrasound? And I think if you're planning to do abdominal ultrasound and you know you want a little bit of career progression, so you're going to start sampling a little bit, you know and do i want to get to the level that i can see kidneys ureters you know all these kind of things using doppler is even if so when when we look for say things like vascular anomalies so like shunts and that kind of thing it really is crucial to have some kind of doppler in your machine because you want to make sure the black tube you're looking at actually is blood you know make sure we're not looking at a common bile look that's dilated and that we've Diagnose it as a shunt, um, and also things like knowing how to use that Doppler, and you know what do the red and blue things mean? You know, does it mean away? Does it mean towards? I don't know. It was something in my lectures. I can't remember what this but like finding out what those things mean. You know, how do I th- do things like where I put my probe on, and I know there's a big aorta and I can see it pulsing, so I'm pretty sure there's some flow in it how come my Doppler is not working? And you know usually it's things like people they they haven't increased the power enough or the dog's panting too much and they've got too much movement or you know perhaps when we're that vessel it's it's perpendicular or parallel to our probe and so you're you're not going to get any kind of movement on those and for those you need to change the angle of your probe and these are all like little things that you you know if you do decide to do a little bit more advanced ultrasound you can come to one of the courses and we can show you how to do that but if a lot of machines that in the newer machines, most of them have it, you know, because it's such a ubiquitous thing across machines, most people want it. And if you are planning to do things like sampling, you know, it's a good idea, even if it's a, you know, some people see a neck lesion, and you're like, oh, it's accessible, I think I can hit that, you know. Make sure it's not, you know, thyroid carcinoma or something. You put the probe on, put the Doppler on, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Well, you probably don't want to stick a needle in that, you know, or you're going to run the risk of having a huge bleed after. And the same thing would happen for some abdominal lesions. You know, maybe that's a cluster of vessels. You know, maybe that's not a little mass. And so that's the kind of things I would I would definitely advise before you start doing any interventional processes.
0: And, and can I ask this as, a, as a, uh, a, a, a very sort of basic question probably? Are there... Um, specific things that we as vets would require from an ultrasound that you don't need in people or vice versa, as in, can we use sort of uh, ex-human machines or, or is it now, is it more the algorithms that are used so than the processes No, behind? so
1: our the machine we bought is a human machine. They're all human machines. So I think BCF are probably one of the only companies that make veterinary specific ones, but there's no difference. And really what it is, is getting to grips with, like I said, the basic settings, so the brightness, the gain, the time gain compensation, depth, focal points. And you know, once you get to the grips of those and you're like, well, still still the image looks a bit rubbish. Well then it's going back to the the whoever sold you the the machine and hopefully getting a little bit of advice on, you know, how could I change the grayscale on the image? How could I change the contrast on the image? You know, so there's something like that in the background that we don't normally play with that I can change you know, maybe something was really funky with how the frame rate's been set up and it looks, it's really like moving like slow motion. You have no idea what's going on. So there could be something like that that's been set up, not incorrectly, but it was correct for whatever they used it for originally. I think, I'm not sure what, how if you buy a machine secondhand, if you're buying it from an individual or something, I don't know where you would go to for support on it. But I would say more than likely, you know, particularly if you tend to go to some of the ultrasound course and that, you know, if you, you might be able to get in contact with someone who could do like a consultation with it or maybe even some of the ultrasound companies, you know, if they thought they could sell you some probes, they might be able to come in and help you. But I think for your average individual, it might be difficult enough to be able to work your way through all of that without understanding some of the physics behind it—that would be the only thing. And of course, like the internet is always a, a good solution. So, like if you have a machine like this, I'm pretty sure there's a manual somewhere on the internet that will tell you how to change some of the settings, and it might even tell you how to change some of those grayscale maps. And you know, you just work as a step-by-step process of what they're telling you to do. But most of the, the majority of the machines you get are all ex- they're all human machines. They're not veterinary specific.
0: And as uh, technology sort of changes year to year to year, is, there, you know, is that like uh, so today, if you got the best ultrasound, tomorrow there'll be something mm. newer?
1: Mm, not necessarily, and, and there's huge variation. So we, when we bought that machine, we tried all of the top machines on the market. And it's a little bit embarrassing to say that the machine that was bought in 1998 was actually better than some of the machines that we looked at and, you know, it's not always for everything. So some of them, you know, for for cats, the images were wonderful, but go above 10 kilos and it was like looking into a fuzzy grey cloud, you know. And so you're thinking to yourself, my God, like this is a 50 grand machine. Why is it so rubbish? And so I think, you know, if you are thinking of or considering buying a machine like that, if you have your little dog, your little cat at home, you know, borrow your mate's Labrador and compare them and see what they they can do for you. Because even without, like you you might say, oh, I spend I can spend the most amount of money, I have all this money, I can buy the most expensive machine. It might not be the best machine. And even some of the image processing things, you'll see some of the machines are, are different. I don't really, so the GE machines tend to be very smooth. And some people really like that and they learn to train, they're trained on that. And I, I, it takes me a while to adjust to it. And if you like that kind of thing, you know, maybe that kind of machine might be better for you, you know, rather than a kind of a little bit more um, sharper image, which I tend to prefer on the machine that we have. But you know, again, it, it's, it, it's, and you know, with all those new machines, I, I spoke to you a little bit about the Harmonics and Pulsar version. Some of them will offer that as part of the package, you know. And so if if they do offer you that with it, it's going to improve your image quality. But again, you might need someone to tinker with it. And that would be ideal if you're working with those companies. You kind of say, well, you saw me the harmonics, but man, they make the image look worse. Like you need to come back and fix this. And that, like there's engineers that are there and that is just their job, you know, and they're they're amazing individuals to talk to them and they really understand what they're doing. Because even, even for us, when we learn the physics of these, it's fairly superficial when you see what they can do. Um, but uh, you kind of have to be a little bit collaborative with them, you know, I, I probably, if you're starting practice and you're wanting to buy a new machine, you're probably better buying it from somebody who has some tech support as well, rather than just going to your mate down the road and buying their machine.
0: And with, with the use of these uh, ultrasound as well, I suppose maybe, maybe a final question, I know you've got to, uh, you've got to get out of here soon. But um, uh, should we, like with anything, if we're going to make a clinical decision of them, store these images? Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: And, and you should write a report which like you know if you if you think about when you're doing your notes and i know people are really busy you know i see the notes i see how much shorthand they use and i see how many spelling mistakes and i know this is because they're trying to do this in five ten minutes but if you take some radiographs you'll always nearly see a little note where they've gone i think i see this blah 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 i think it's this and really we should be doing the same thing for ultrasound because if you say you've done an abdominal ultrasound i assume that you've looked at, liver, spleen, kidneys, adrenals. You know, there's times that we scan and we can't see the adrenals, but we'll make a note of it and we'll say, I haven't seen the left adrenal. And so if, if that animal has CT, or maybe it's it's been fasted and someone else scans it and then it has a big tumor, well, you know, you, you've looked for it, but maybe you're not able to see it because you don't have the capabilities or there's something else wrong, like it's got an abdomen full of air, but you've at least you've noted that you've looked for it, but you can't see it. And so you can't assume it's normal, Just just on the fact that obviously you haven't seen it, um, and I think you know as we're charging more money for these things, we should be documenting it. You know, I I, I think it's going to be a bit of a problem though with storage because we're we're coming to the stage where you've got if you do I don't know a couple of ultrasounds a day, those studies need to be stored somewhere because there's only so much space on on the ultrasound, and I don't know then do you need two copies because if you have a hard drive and someone drops the hard drive and then that's gone. So then you don't have a copy of the images anymore. And I, and like we've moved, we're moving to obviously a cloud-based storage because before I think now we're up to 14 terabytes of storage. And so we needed to move away from a physical storage system with that. And and we use a PAC system, which is a picture archiving service. And, and the, I, I'm, a, I assume a lot of the companies must be starting to provide those PACS systems because, you know, as those companies are exchanging DICOM images between, so that would be our standard image format for ultrasound images as well, they're transferring them between telerad companies and, and, you know, your practices, or say your patient gets referred, well then you can send us those DICOMs and those are going to retain all the information that they, on the original time that they collected them, rather than compressing them that we see in JPEGs and things. And so you know, if you're going to be serious about it and you're going to want to store them, and maybe you already have a DR digital system for your radiographs, maybe someone can provide you with a, a, you know, a smaller PAX unit to store those images.
0: That uh, is very good. I I think that the the whole sort of storage side of it as well is 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 going to be another sort of complexity, but I imagine that a lot of people are getting their own solutions with digital radiography as, as yeah. well about yeah. how, that, how that occurs, yeah. so just put it on the, on, the, on the back of that I'd imagine, but everything has to speak to each other as well and I suppose that's something that I've, I've um, <laughs> learned in the background, you know, yeah. all these different machines, they, they, they might not put out the same language. So
1: the older machines, that's a problem, but the newer ones, they all tend to be pretty good. It's, probably, it's usually not an issue.
0: Well, um, I think uh, no, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. So sure. many, many thanks for your time today, and uh, and thank no you worries. for uh, for yeah, thank you so much for your your time. Um and uh what we'll do is uh, don't forget to hit that uh, subscribe button on your generic free space device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing your podcast. So if you can leave us a review um that would be great and we'll place any show notes um on the RVC pages, so just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine and it shouldn't be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email dbarfield at or tweet at dom barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.